Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Patch by William Sheddenhelm. This is first published in Planet Stories in fall 1950. I picked it out because I was reading this issue and I said, hey, that one's short. (laughs) (laughs) And I do like short stories and I like science fiction short stories. I've read a few others in this issue, including uh, one that's quite long, comparatively, um, called Meme. And uh, that's by Margaret St. Clair. There's also a Ray Bradbury in there and uh, Paul Anderson, which I have also read. So this is a well-read issue. This story has never been republished. William Sheddenhelm has never been credited with another science fiction work. Um, It's possible, and um, I I don't say with any confidence, it's possible that it's a pseudonym of the editor. Um, He has been known to do that. Um, His name was uh, Jerome Bixby, a fairly fairly famous uh, author, uh, more probably more influential as an editor. Um, But the problem is, I don't think Jerome Bixby's writing is all that great. (laughs) And this, although it's not amazing, um, it's pretty tight. And uh, there are things in its favor that have less to do with writing and more to do with um, exercise of certain ideas and certain kinds of science fiction. So that's what that was what interested me, and I think I interested you in um, it by talking about its relation to a concept in science fiction we called hard SF. Um, now there's a couple of uh, things about hard SF that I think are important. One is you know what is it? Uh, another thing um, is is it how hard is it <laughs> so um the example i'm talking about is i in back in april i put up a, a tweet um that was a, what we call a poll you know where you put up a couple of questions and or put up a question and give people a choice and it's not a scientific poll because it's only a poll of the people who happen to be following my account and who happen to see it at the time uh, but the question I put up was, for a science fiction short story, which is more important? Focus on characters or focus on concepts? Now, I don't shape the audience of uh, people who follow me, but the result was uh, 63% in favor of focus on concepts and 37% focus on characters. I think this has both, uh, but I don't really care about one other than its service to the other. If you see what I mean. Well, I, I, I'm waiting to find out which one you want in service to the other. I think for science fiction, uh, I want characters in service to the ideas. Characters in service to the concepts. And in this case, I think that that's exactly what we get. There are related phenomena within it. One is like, this is a tall tale in a certain sense. Um, and it's about a a teller of tall tales and sort of exaggerated characters. On the other hand, um, I don't think it works except (laughs) as a delivery device for 
hard SF ideas. It's uh, I, I use like the um, the idea of uh, science fiction is a is a uh, a um, an inoculation, a kind of um, syringe. I want the syringe to be clean and clear so I can see what's in it. And I want the medicine that's delivered within the syringe into my body to be uh, beneficial. And uh, if you muddy it up, <laughs> if you use an old syringe, if you uh, don't have the contents to be beneficial, then I don't really want it. This is a very silly metaphor that I'm going for, but I also kind of believe it to be a, a true thing. And I, I find it helps me understand why I like things a lot more to think of it that way. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about hard SF being, you know, what makes it hard and why is it important? I, I've been recently watching a lot of Star Trek and some Star Treks are hard SF, even though they've got all sorts of things that are very, not very hard. And some of them are completely, basically, space opera. There are no uh, scientific concepts in presentation. There's very few social concepts in presentation. It's just drama. Laser beams and such. And that's not what I'm I'm there for. Well, you and I may be there for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me me, uh, give my own view of what the term hard SF... uh, points to. I must say that, by my view, uh, this story is pretty bad hard SF, although it does have one cute hard SF uh, reveal at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hard SF is uh, a term that is created to parallel the the range that we get from hard science to soft science. Mm-hmm. So the, the softer the science, let's say uh, theology, mm-hmm. um, where you get to pick your sets of facts and decide how you think they need to function together, um, is at one end. And at the other end is, say, physics or mathematics, where um, you know, there are rules and the rules can't be broken. Hard SF, although it is a fantastic genre, it is after all science fiction, um, says that if we take the, the fantastic element as given, then we could use the rules of the, the science of that world, meaning the hard science of that world, and even the hard science that we know often, and actually get it right. So in hard SF, if a, uh, if a rocket ship runs out of fuel and gets stuck in an orbit around some celestial body, in hard SF, we ought to be able to calculate that orbit, even though there are no rockets getting you know, stuck in orbit around mm-hmm. satellites in the real world. At the other end, we don't give a darn about explaining anything. It's just, okay, he's got a ray gun and, you know... Darn it, he ran out of ray juice. Uh, you know, there you go. Yep. Uh, what you call space opera. I think that this story, you might well be right, that it's, it wants to be hard SF, but it is so bad at it that I find it amusing as a late parody of what you call tall tales, which is a genre of uh, storytelling, particularly 
prominent in America. Um, so we have different views, and we want to get to talk about them. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about what the story is first? Yes, the details. Mm -hmm. Why don't you uh, so, start by reading the opening, and then maybe give us the <laughs> the summary of the rest. Sounds good. Patch by William Sheddenhelm, whoever that might be. The wall speaker in the control tower was crackling softly with the space static when the voice cut in. Lorelei calling Venusport for landing. Over. Even across 10,000 miles of space, the sharp New England twang clearly showed the origin of its owner. Joe flicked the transmitting stud and winked at the radar man. Venusport to Lorelei, come on in, you old space pirate. Use ramp four. Out. He glanced at the green spot on the radar sweep screen that was the Lorelei, entered a set of figures in the tower log, then leaned back in the chair in front of the control panels and lit a cigarette. That pop, he said, nodding vaguely at the radar screen and the logbook, must be damn 200 years old, and he's still the best pilot in the system. Used to have, all, have the all-planetary run back when it was really something. When they put in automatics for cruising, it made him so mad he quit and never would go back. Said he wasn't going to let a bunch of machines run his ship, even out in space. So, we have the setup. Um... 200-year-old guy that's not considered to be outrageously old, best darn pilot that there is, smoking, 1950s kinds of radar. Mm -hmm. uh, we are stuck in the 1950s. We're just making believe it's some other time. And in the course of this, uh, the, the fellow who operates, the, the ground controller, um, gets to tell Mike about who this Pop Gillette is. Pop Gillette lands... And he uh, does so with an extraordinary maneuver, uh, bringing the ship to a screeching uh, flip at the end so that it's vertical and then comes down and cracks the launching pad but stays sturdy. Uh, comes into the uh, control tower, says hello to people, distributes gifts. He's a real character. But it turns out while he's there in the control tower, a mayday comes in from one of those new ships and the people in those new ships can't figure out how to make it land it looks like they are out of luck forever uh, which by the way makes it sound a lot like jerome bixby's um it's a good life um anyway they can't figure out how to make it land forever uh, land at all and they're out of luck forever but pop gillette says what have you got in your cargo they tell him what's in the cargo, and he says, okay, I'll fix it, and goes up, and he fixes it, at which point we come back and say, well, how did he do that? Mm -hmm. Turns out it was a puzzle story, too, mm -hmm. and at the moment that the puzzle is posed, we then get the solution, um, which I could read, but maybe if you want to tell us more about the middle before we get there, the timing would be better. What do you mm, think? Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, it's funny because I'm saying character is not important, but this Pop Gillette figure is—he's like, like a Paul Bunyan of space. He's a—he's <laughs> a person who people tell stories about, and the stories could even be true. In fact, most of them probably are true, uh, or so we're told. So there's a line on page 94 in the second column. 
um, describing just exactly that. You've heard of Pop Gillette. Everybody in space has. Anytime you want to tell a whopper about space, all you have to say is, I remember one time when Pop Gillette and me was out around so-and-so. And whatever nutty place you name, he probably really been there. And whatever nutty thing you had, you can think of to happen, it probably really did happen to him. That's a nice line. And then, as you point out, um, he is a quite a character. The gifts he hands out. This section is actually, I think, very well written. Um, I really enjoyed it. I will read it. This is on page ninety-five on the uh, first column, just in. The Second big paragraph, just under a page break. It reads, The little figure waved the Zeep headed for the control tower. Uh, Zeep, I figured out, was shortly thereafter, um, is the future version of Jeep. Um, One of the things you're famous for is uh, coining what that is called, transformed language, when you take a, uh, I don't know, a cigarette and turn it into a cigarette or whatever it is in the story. <laughs> Those are little transformations. So Zeeps sound a little faster than Jeeps, but you would find them in an airfield. So why not have a Zeep at a space field, right? Uh, here we go. Right. As it drew nearer, they could begin to see Pop Gillette more clearly. He was a thin little man, deeply space tanned. This is a little concept you see in science fiction um (laughs) before people have even been into space they figure since we're not protected by the atmosphere everybody's going to get a space tan by having the sun be coming in through the windows you'll get a deep tan um he could have he could have been any place from 50 to 350 which (laughs) we don't know if the future they in this story they actually are able to live to 350 we're told he's 200 years old um but uh that's pretty interesting he rode sitting on the rear edge of the speeding zeep balanced precariously calmly puffing a venusian cigarette he came through the outer control rooms like a martian whirlwind spraying greetings and minor presence in all directions hi there tom saw your uncle out near ganabede living with a phobian batwoman <laughs> hi there <laughs> Here's that glue bird's tail feather you asked for five or six years ago. It had been nearly 20 years ago uh, when the recipient was four years old. Hello, honey. You know that Neptunian rock egg you wanted? Got a couple in my ship as big as your head. Come on up to the hotel for supper tonight and I'll give them to you. He winked roguishly at honey and whirled into the control room. Hi, Joe. And Joe's uh, one of our major characters here. You're, you're, you land, you landlocked lard bottom. What have you been doing? And before Joe could start to answer, he went on. Had an unusual thing happen to me out on Pluto. I was out prospecting the liquid hydrogen wells when I sprung a leak in my oxygen tank. I got it fixed, but most of my oxy had leaked out. Had enough for 15, maybe 20 minutes. And thought, uh, and the ship was two hours away. Thought I'd never make it. Finally started back with a load of icicles under my arm. Every few minutes I'd stop, break off a piece, and drop it into my tanks. Turned out to be pure oxygen. Frozen stiff. Now, what I like about this is we're getting this character, which is important. He's sort of the competent man figure we think of as a Heinleinian character. He's a a roguish fellow. He's called a pirate at one point in the story. Although I think that's uh, probably an exaggeration. Um, 
but this is also a preview of what what the problem is, right? There's a uh, break in a tank, he loses his oxygen, and because he's mining liquid uh, hydrogen, the temperatures must be incredibly cold, and so those icicles made out of oxygen, not water, serve as a kind of um, evidence that this is a hard SF story. The focus is here not on the relationship between the characters as much as the character being competent and knowing how to solve problems. And that's what I'm talking about why I think this is an interesting and good story, even if, uh, you know, it's not mostly the smoothest prose on the planet or most beautiful prose on the planet. The focus here is on the, the hardness, the SF part of science fiction rather than the, I don't know, the being set in space part. Well, um, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, my friend. Mm-hmm. You're focusing on that, and it's there. But I'm focusing on the metaphors that you read getting us to that, those oxy-icicles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a quick reminder, you know, a traditional way to talk about metaphors is that they have a, a tenor, which is what they mean, and a vehicle, how the meaning comes across. So if I say... Uh, he was a giant of commerce. Um, it means that the the vehicle is giant, and we take a look at the fact of being big and powerful and outstanding, bigger than those around him. Uh, but the and that's the tenor, right? So the vehicle giant gets across that meaning of the kind of person he was in commerce. What's what normally works when one normally thinks about thinks about um, metaphor is that. You know what the vehicle is. I mean, I've, I, I know what a giant is, and I've seen very tall people, so that's just an exaggeration of them. But here, in science fiction, the, met, the vehicle of the metaphor also doesn't really exist. But we're asked to understand what it would be if it exist, existed, and then use that to understand the tenor. So he came through the outer control rooms like a Martian whirlwind, mm-hmm. spraying greetings and minor presence in all directions. I have no idea what a Martian whirlwind is, <laughs> but the second half of the sentence lets me say, oh, so that's what a Martian whirlwind is. That's the vehicle, and that helps me understand what he, Pop Gillette, is like. Hi there, Tom. Saw your uncle out near Ganymede living with a phobian Batwoman. I have <laughs> idea what a phobian batwoman is right but the fact that he's living with a phobian batwoman means that he's doing something exotic and the vehicle is entirely made of hi there here's that galu bird's tail feather you asked for five or six years ago it had been nearly 20 years ago when the recipient was four years old so i have no idea what a galu bird's tail feather really is but i have to believe it's an object of attraction for a four-year-old mm-hmm. but not much for a 24-year-old so hello honey uh, you know that neptunian rock egg you wanted got a couple in my rock ship as big as your head come on up to the hotel for supper tonight and i'll give them to you my god in Spanish, huevos, uh, <laughs> eggs, um, means, you know, if you've got two of those, right, we know what this is. I've got a rock egg. He's got two rock eggs <laughs> as big as his head. We know what that wink is. So I have no idea what a Neptunian rock egg is or why Honey said she wanted them. 
but we know that from Pop Gillette's viewpoint, they're etchings, right? Come have dinner with me, and then I'll show you my etchings, <laughs> right? So the, 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 the tenor of all of these metaphors works beautifully, even though the met- in fact, because the metaphors are made up. And what I would say is, I think this is, as genre writing goes, delightful. Mm-hmm. But I would also point out, none of that is hard SF. Uh, no, no, not a bit. Any way to calculate or figure out what any of these things really are. So in that sense, I'm actually thinking, you know, as I say, you know, how do we, what are our differing um, impressions of the story? I think I'm at least initially more taking out what I think of as stylistic entertainment and focus on a admittedly stereotyped tall tale character, but done well mm-hmm. as those characters can be. And it is here, I think, much more than the uh, the hard SF part for me. Well, well we, what you didn't discuss was that final part, right? Where he talks uh, about yes. how he sprung a leak in his oxygen tank. Uh, he got it fixed, lost most of his oxygen. This is actually the cold equations, right? A little... A, a tiny version of the cold equations, except he sat or himself. A pail of air. Or a pay, even better, a pail of air. This is a, a situation where, if you know a little bit about how uh, material science works and temperature and physics, um, it can save your life, right? Now, this is obviously not a true story, but material science is like how reality works for us we don't maybe know how to make alloys you and me but we know theoretically how alloys uh, are put together we know what the word alloy means and if you are on the frontier and you need to make a fire having the knowledge of how to make a fire and what makes good firewood or fire starter uh you know rubbing two sticks together this is kind of what we're talking when i'm what i'm talking about with it being hard sf and and I'm sorry. And and Didn't that and no and that is where all of this you know this character stuff leads to. The reason he is a tall tale figure is not because you know he tells tall tales, but because he is the genuine article in a certain sense. So I think this is framed by a concluding a conclusion which is very rapid. That last page. And, you know, the explanation for how he fixed it is uh, framed by uh, actually a little interjection saying, uh, you all know all about this because you saw it on the news. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, it's not a tall tale in the in in, um, in their world. It may be in our world, but it's not in their world. In their world, it's, you know, uh, Sully Sullivanberger. Uh, landing on the Potomac or whatever, right? The Hudson. It's, the Hudson. That's right. It's it's a kind of um, a big news story that's a happy ending, and uh, we have a hero. And the hero is not a hero because you know he's wearing a nice suit. He's a hero because he knew how to solve problems. I, I guess here's where 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 you and I maybe would actually have a disagreement, not just a difference in taste. I think. To give, a, to give a famous tall tale, Paul Bunyan, whom you referenced, Paul Bunyan tells his, uh, his men that uh, they shouldn't curse, 
Right? He's out there in a logging camp. He's, and he said, you, you guys shouldn't curse. Don't use bad language. It got so cold, <laughs> so cold that their words froze. <laughs> so he kept all of these frozen words. And when the first thaw came, he let them all all thaw out at once. And there was just curse, 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 curse. It was so overpowering that those rough loggers realized how bad it was. And that's how he got them to stop cursing. <laughs> now, that's a very famous tall tale. Yeah. Of course, you can't freeze words that way. Uh, the fact is you can't freeze oxygen and then breathe it because pure oxygen will destroy human lungs. So that oxy-icicle does not work, whereas the pail of air in Fritz Leiber's famous story does. This is, to my mind, more a tall tale, which gets part of its joy out of being impossible rather than hard SF. And what makes the story memorable is that two very bright people, you and I, can actually see this thing walking a line between tall tale and hard SF. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get to the ending. It's interesting, on 97, the last page, as you say, it goes very fast. Um, you, we all know how you managed to fix the 10-foot-wide uh, hole in the, uh, in the hull of the, the spaceship that, that otherwise would have been just a disaster for everybody and all the people would have died. Um, how did you fix it? Joe stared at him in puzzlement. And there's the puzzle. Now, in a good puzzle tale, you get the puzzle way in the beginning, as mm -hmm. in, say, a classic tale of the great detective by Poe, like uh, the purloined letter. Mm -hmm. And you get lots and lots of stuff along the way to see if you can come up with the answer before one of the characters does. This, if it's a puzzle tale, is in fact bad writing. Because the first time you see the word puzzle is the word before the answer, mm -hmm. which is bedsheets. And then we get the answer. Shall I read the ending? Yes, please. Because, okay, this is hard SF. They've already determined the contents of the, the ship. We've been told what it has. And one of the things it has is used here. Bed sheets, what for? Pop Gillette cast his eyes heavenward as, as for deliverance. cast his eyes heavenwards as for deliverance. I'm sure glad I don't run a liner anymore. I might get somebody like you for a co-pilot. I had to have a mole, didn't I? To make a patch, which is the name of the story, to cover the uh, hole. You heard the pilot say the patch had to be metal to stand the pressure, 15 pounds to the inch. Over a 10-foot patch is a lot of pressure. That's bad SF, uh, hard SF, by the way. Well, after I had sheets over the hole, I turned it towards the sun, filled the mold and turned it around away from the sun. The temperature drop in space did the rest. Joe put his hand to his brow and glanced at his wine glass suspiciously. I vaguely get what you're talking about, but just what did you make the patch out of? Pop Gillette chuckled wryly. The mercury, of course, froze hard as steel when I turned her away from the sun. Perfect fit, too. End of story. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest SF in the story. Yep. That's what you like. Tell us about it. your okay. response. Okay, so there are, there are, as you say, issues. You cannot, as you say, breathe pure oxygen for an extended period of time and not uh, do great damage to yourself because we are living in a mostly nitrogen atmosphere. 
he his nitrogen tank is probably fine. <laughs> it was his oxygen tank that got damaged, right? <laughs> there are, there are ways of explaining. Um, another problem with this is it, they're going to use this um, this patch to fill the the uh, control room with air so that they can land the ship. Um, well, in landing the ship, they may experience some heat uh, going up, in which case the patch would not hold, right? Um, right. But <laughs> these are sort of niggles. These are niggles. This could be solved by turning the temperature down, right, in the room, or making sure it's uh, shielded. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not there to apologize for the story. What I'm there for is when he says he he has a list of what the cargo ship is carrying. You know, they've got some food from. Uh, you know, some meat we've never heard of. They've got some uranium, <laughs> which is already previously shouted out in the story when uh, when Pop Gillette landed a whole asteroid on the uh, Earth and cut a, cut it up um, because it was a, almost pure uranium, right? Made a bundle off of it. Um, but the mercury, what good is mercury? Well, we think of mercury as a liquid metal, and it does not do you any good as a patch in your bottom of your boat to pour water into it. But a fact about mercury is when you do freeze it, get it down to its, its frozen temperature, it becomes not just as hard as steel as quoted here, but actually harder than steel. It's incredibly uh, tensile strength. Its tensile strength is incredibly high. So when he says to uh, Joe, hey, grab, <laughs> we're going to go fix that spaceship, you and me, uh, grab that roll of scotch tape. <laughs> I'm like, what? How are you going to fix it with scotch tape? Um, <laughs> I would think, make sure you bring enough scotch tape. Maybe duct tape would be better. But yeah, bed sheets. This is um, this is the old-fashioned, we can fix it ourselves when we have a, a problem with a kitchen sink instead of going and hiring a plumber. You know, get out the tools and fix it. That's what this story is essentially about. It has all sorts of other stuff. The name of the ship is the Lorelei, right? Which is mm-hmm. a uh, famous um, Northern European folklore character um, on the Rhine, where it's basically a siren of, uh, of Scandinavia. But you've got the idea of ships get wrecked. Ships get holes yep. popped in them, right? And yep. the the siren call of space is, you know, go hang out with the Venusian bat women or pho- Phobian bat women, right? I guess they hang upside down from the ceiling. <laughs> it's ridiculous. This story knows it's <laughs> indeed. Um, they probably launch those things into orbit very easily, even by bunting on Phobos. Um, <laughs> the important part of all of this this story is to get to that button where we, uh, as you say, are shown that the puzzle was solvable. And we don't know it's that kind of story when we start because it takes its time getting to the incident, the rising incident. And we don't even know what the title means until we basically are halfway through. And that is, you know, making it not a classic. On the other hand... This story only works for me at all. And it really works, I think, incredibly well, because it is saying, look, material science is important. We can use it. It's something to think about. And that cross between, 
you know, solving problems and knowing things is what, to me, is makes science fiction, and especially hard SF, really important. Well, I, I do agree that that's, one, for me, one of the, the important aspects of science fiction. Certainly, it's what Hugo Gernsback, who founded the first science fiction magazine, thought was in, the most important thing about mm-hmm. science fiction, that it would, it would inspire and train a new generation of scientists. But to me, um, enjoy it, my friend. Enjoy it as much as you like, the way you like it. I like it as a tall tale. I think that when you take that scotch tape to the, uh, to the ship, which is so cold... Right, so cold because it has a ten-foot hole in it facing space, right? And the idea is to use that scotch tape somehow to get the the twin bed sheets to make a a mold that is both on the outside and the inside of the hull hull so you can fill it with mercury. To be able to make that those bed sheets hold with scotch tape presumes that the adhesive on scotch tape works perfectly well at both the extreme high temperatures and the extreme low temperatures. Yep. Just as Paul Bunyan could freeze those words. To me, the science here is self-evidently silly. So that we can laugh, and it was a perfect fit, too. Mm-hmm. I don't discount what you're saying about this particular tall tale putting a lot of moral weight behind the significance of science but i don't think it's a hard sf story i think it's a tall tale that says and science is really important Mm. you know um there's a related uh tweet that i i was very enamored with um a guy named carl k gallagher i think it's carl k rather than carl j gallagher he's a modern sf uh hard sf writer and you know in hard sf you do have to take liberties um if you want to tell certain stories i I would say you know look at larry niven's um uh, beowulf schaefer stories they're the borderlands of soul these are stories about gravity uh, getting close to neutron stars and uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, we don't have the technology to get in a spaceship and fly to these places and then uh, do these things because we just don't have that tech. Right. But the point of those stories is not, you know, to make everything realistic, but rather to make something realistic so that we can have that sense of awe, right? That sense of, oh, my God, this is kind of true in a way. It, it's why we want to go to Mars and put a lander on it and have it take pictures. Because, you know, it's all nice and well to have A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs in our head. But that's not really the same thing as seeing what the actual place looks like. And, yeah, it's not the experience of walking on it. It's not like we've been to Mars. But in a certain sense, it's a glimpse of what being on Mars would be like. And that's, that's good. I'm I'm there. So the fact that, you know, scotch, as you rightly point out, material science also says scotch tape probably wouldn't work very well in space. Um, the alternating heat and also just the fact that there's no atmosphere will probably damage the adhesive greatly. So I don't, I don't have, uh, you know, to make this story scientifically sound, you'd have to do a lot more work 
but I don't yeah. I don't want, need it to do that. So the idea of a, a Mohs scale of hardness, this is something you learn in geology. You know, calcite is relatively hard, and uh, halite is harder, and and eventually you get up to diamonds, right? Diamond is the hardest. That's a 10 on the scale of hardness. Um, but some things you can scratch with your fingernail and other things you can't scratch. But the idea of getting harder and harder and harder, um, you you take one rock and you rub it against the other rock, and whichever scratches the other is the harder of the two rocks. Eventually, you can sort of pit two stories against each other. You could take this story, which seems to be set on Venus, uh, although not the Venus we know, and compare it to a Ray Bradbury story, pretty much anyone you can pick. And this is much harder. <laughs> it's, it just, it's just a harder story. It is not Absolutely. a 10 on the most scale of hardness, but it ain't a 4. It's more like no. a 6. So, so the thing to do would be to put Ray Bradbury at one end of the scale and yes. Larry Niven's neutron star there you go. at the other end of the scale, and we put this somewhere in between. And I mm-hmm. think it's not coincidental that this one, um, as I suggested, walks a line between tall tail and hard SF. Mm-hmm. This one, unlike Neutron Star, is really very funny. Absolutely. And that tells us something. I, I've read a whole bunch of hard SF. Um, the closest I can come to for hard SF being funny is uh, Mission of Gravity, Hal Clement's Mission of Gravity, mm-hmm. which is amusing. But this is just downright silly. I like it. I do too. I'm glad you like it. Um, and it makes us realize, even in space, we need to know. Um, I mean, in fictional space, uh, where they have space tans and space <laughs> static. and spa- I mean, the space is used as an adjective again and again and again in the story to make things up. Because even with one word... When you're in this kind of environment that bridges between the hilarious and the hard SF, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.